Hey friends, welcome back to Unshakable. Thanks for joining me. We are continuing in our study of Christian nationalism by starting at looking at the eschatological foundation for it, which is post-millennialism. If you were with us last time, you know we talked about sort of the big picture. We talked about what is the mission of the church. We looked at how post-mill puts an emphasis on the Christianization of the nations of the world versus a pre-mill perspective, which focuses on calling the elect out of the nations of the world and into a new and holy nation, a royal priesthood. And that, that terminology comes out of 1 Peter 2, that Christ is building as he builds his church. So the pre-mill emphasis is on individuals and regeneration of the heart, seeing people get saved, versus the post-mill vision, which is more about the nations of the earth coming under God's law. So today I want to continue with a few more objections that I have to the post-mill vision of the future, which is that before Christ returns, that all nations and all people groups are going to submit to God's law, and that somehow that is going to bring uh, peace and righteousness to the earth and almost eliminate sin. So in order for a post-mill vision of the future to be true, three things I want to cover today. Three things would have to be true. Number one, we would have to be in the millennial period today, right now. The millennial period, as described in Revelation 20. Uh, both both all-mill and post-mill would say we're in that period right now. That's number one. Number two, for the post-mill vision to be true, Satan would have to be bound or restrained right now. And again, that comes out of Revelation 20. We'll look at it in just a second. And third, we would have to be heading towards a golden age of spirituality across the entire world. So here's the question as we start. Are those three things true? Okay, so let's address that first question. Could we be in the millennial period right now? As I just said, both Amils and Postmills believe that the kingdom of God is, is currently in its fullness right now. We're in the millennial period and Christ is reigning from heaven. Now, they believe that in spite of what we see happening around us in the world. But I'm going to resist uh, shooting down their theory just based on what I see with my eyes. I talked about that last time. we got to be careful not to do that. But let's look at their hermeneutic and how they interpret Revelation chapter 20, because this really is my primary beef. In Revelation 20, we see this phrase, a thousand years, over and over again. And yet it's been almost twice that since the resurrection of Christ. So the only way really to, to try to fit your post-mill vision is, is to completely spiritualize or allegorize that phrase, thousand years. Um, now, I know the book of Revelation is very symbolic in nature, but we're going to see just how intense that phrase is. Here's the thing. Most of my post-mill brothers and sisters, they generally have a good hermeneutic. They don't spiritualize the text, except when it comes to eschatology, except when it comes to something like the thousand years. Then they sort of leave their hermeneutic, which is to try to interpret Scripture as literally as you can, unless there is a reason in the text itself not to. So let's take a look at Revelation chapter 20, and then I'll, I'll provide some observations at the end. Here's what it says. Revelation 20, beginning in verse 1. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding the key of the abyss and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for how long? A thousand years. And he threw him into the abyss and shut it and sealed it over him so that, catch this now, he would not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were completed. 
After these things, he must be released for a short time. So you hear the thousand years twice there, and then you hear about the so-called binding of Satan. He's thrown into some type of an abyss, and he is restrained any longer from deceiving the nations. We'll come back to that in just a moment. Now, from verses 4 through 6, this term thousand years is used three more times. So we're up to five times this specific phrase is used. Now drop down to verse 7. When the thousand years are completed, Satan will be released from his prison. Okay, so when the thousand years are over, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth. So there are six specific mentions of this phrase, thousand years, in just seven verses in Revelation chapter 20. Very specific, right? Is there a reason to take that phrase allegorically in the text? I don't think so. Because remember, there are plenty of Greek, Greek words that could be used to describe an age or a period of time, even a long period of time. But John is so specific here in Revelation 20 that it is a thousand years. Now, I don't have time for this, but if you really want to uh, dig deep into the post-mill um, and all-mill uh, vision of the future, look at what they believe about the chronological sequence of Revelation 19 and 20. They don't see a historical connection there. It's called a recapitulation theory. And the whole idea is in that perspective, not mine, in that perspective, Revelation 20 is a recapitulation of the entire period from the time of the resurrection until the second coming. So take a look at that. Again, for post-mill, the thousand years just means a long period of time. And in their way of looking at things, Satan must be right now trapped in prison in this abyss. Has been since the resurrection of Christ going on, what, 1,990 years now. That's the next question we need to ask. So let's ask and answer that question. Is Satan bound right now? Is he restrained from deceiving the nations as we speak today? Has he been restrained for the last almost 2,000 years? Well, to me that seems pretty unbiblical because I can, I can point to a number of passages right off the top of my head that seems to indicate that Satan is still the prince of the power of the air, still is out there deceiving people each and every day. I'll give you some examples. In the history of the church, we have the story of Ananias and Sapphira in Acts chapter 5, where it says, Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back some of the price of the land? What about Jesus himself? He explains in the parable of the sower that Satan is active still in snatching away the gospel message from some people. It says in Matthew 13, when anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. What about Paul? How did Paul view the activity of Satan uh, on the earth during the church age? Let's see what he says. 2 Corinthians 4. And even if our gospel is veiled, it's veiled to those who are perishing, in whose case the God of this world, that's Satan, has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. And then Paul even uh, applied the work of Satan to himself, saying that he had been given a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan, to torment me, to keep me from exalting myself. 
And then there's perhaps, in my opinion, the most devastating passage of all that tells us that Satan is not bound, and that comes from 1 Peter 5. It says, Be of sober spirit, be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. So I don't see how we get around this. It's clear that Satan is still very active in the world. Obviously, we can see that today. The deception in the world is crazy, but it's right there in the text of Scripture as well. And by the way, this might be a good time for me just to pop in. If you're premillennial, what do you believe about the activity of Satan on the earth today in this church age? Well, like everybody else, we agree that Satan was defeated at the cross, right? We have the victory through the blood of Christ shed on the cross. But he's still powerful and he's still active. He is still the prince of the power of the air. Now, the thing you have to know about Satan, even though he's active, he is still limited by God's sovereignty. He is, he is not omnipotent or omnipresent. He is a created being. So he's subject to whatever God says he can or can't do. So I've always described him as like a pit bull on a chain, right? God will let that chain out or pull that chain back based on his purposes. So Satan's active. He is powerful, subject to God's sovereignty. His binding and restraint will come someday, but not until Christ returns, not until he comes and establishes millennial kingdom. That is the premillennial position. For now, we are aliens and strangers, right? Pilgrims on this earth, and we are living and serving in the midst of this present evil age. And to the very end, from our perspective, the world system lies in the grip of the evil one. So let's deal now with that third question. Are we heading towards a golden age of prosperity across the entire earth? Based on the post-mill vision, is there going to be total success of the gospel, total success of Christianizing the nations? The thing you have to, you have to ask yourself as you look at the Old Testament in particular, the extent to which the entire world is going to be transformed in the millennial kingdom is quite remarkable. Let me give you some examples of this. It says, the entire earth will know God. There will be no more wars. There's no more conflict between human beings. Uh, sickness will be overcome. Deformities will be no more. People will live for hundreds of years again, it says. The animal kingdom is completely altered. You look at Isaiah 11 where it says, the lion will lay down with the lamb. There's no more, there's no more carnivores on the earth. They're herbivores. And, and little children will play with a snake, right? So even peace between uh, animals and people comes. Vegetation will flourish in places it never did before. The Dead Sea comes back to life, for example. The deserts bloom. So the whole earth is completely transformed. Now, I want you to think about this. Which of these two scenarios makes more sense? That the gospel goes to the ends of the earth and the nations become subject to God's law and submit to him. Does that transform the entire globe in the way I just described? Or is it more likely that that massive transformation takes place because God himself has come back in his glorified state, come back to the earth, and is ruling the nations from Jerusalem? Listen, to me, that second option makes way more sense. That's the premillennial option. So if we're headed towards this golden age of spirituality across the entire world, let's ask the question then, what about Christ followers during the church age? Would we be hated or welcomed? Okay, will, will many find the kingdom or few? Well, Jesus spoke to this in his day. He said to the crowds, he said, 
The gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction, and there are many who enter through it. And on the flip side, the gate is small and the way is narrow that leads to life, and there are few who find it. So no, we shouldn't expect that the entire world is going to open their arms and embrace the gospel because only a few find that narrow gate. What about persecution? Are we going to be hated or embraced? Well, uh, John 17, the high priestly prayer of Jesus is instructive on this because he makes it really clear. Let's look at this. Jesus prays to the Father, I have given them, my disciples, your word, and the world has hated them, not embraced them, hated them because they're not of the world, even as I'm not of the world. I do not ask you to take them out of the world. Now, why would Jesus ask to take them out of the world if the world's going to embrace them? Okay, but he says, but to keep them from the evil one. And there's Satan again, right? Uh, he must be active, right? Because Jesus has said, I, I'm, you know, I'm praying to you, Father, that you keep them from the evil one who must still be active. That seems very, very clear. Listen, Jesus' disciples are going to be hated by the nations. The nations are always going to rebel against God, and they're going to rebel and hate those who represent God. This Sunday in church, we're covering Psalm 2, and that is the theme of this eschatological royal psalm. It says, The nations are in an uproar. The kings of the earth take their stand against the Lord and against His anointed. They don't open their arms and embrace God's law. They take their stand against the Lord. This is especially true at the end of Revelation 20. If the post-mill vision were correct, and most of the world had embraced God's law and submitted to Yahweh, then you would expect just a few people to rebel against Him in the very end, right? In Revelation 20. But what does John say? How many gather for war? He says the number of them is like the sand of the seashore. Let me give you two other really practical things that impact our Christian living um, and, and, and a couple reasons why I think the post-mill vision doesn't make sense. Number one, if you hold to post-millennialism, you end up minimizing one of the primary experiences that is supposed to mark every Christian and the church as a whole, and that is suffering for Christ. We're called to share in the sufferings of our Lord. And if the entire world it comes under God's law in this this uh, golden age of spirituality, then we're not going to need to suffer. But Romans 8 makes it clear, the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that's to be revealed to us. So our suffering, according to what Paul says in Romans, should last all the way through the day of our redemption, which is the return of Christ. So I think it minimizes suffering. Number two, it takes away this issue of imminence. We are always supposed to be living on alert as Christians, always ready for His return. Well, in a post-mill world where we can expect things to just get better and better and better, and this ushering in of a glorious time of spirituality where righteousness fills the earth, we wouldn't need to be ready for His return at all. Okay, I need to wrap up because this video is starting to get kind of long. Let me just finish with this general statement. As much as I wish the world were going to get better and that God's law were going to go out and cultures and societies were going to improve and the gospel would spread and, and so many people would come into the kingdom, I would love that, especially for my kids and grandkids. But friends, I have to tell you, I don't see it happening. I think the world is going to continue to get worse, not better. 
I think it's going to get darker, not lighter. And I think the New Testament bears that out. I think the New Testament argues that the last days are going to be filled with more sin and more rebellion, not less. Let's look at it. Paul makes this clear to Timothy, 2 Timothy 3. He says, but realize this, realize this, that in the last days, difficult times will come. That phrase, last days, is usually ascribed to the last age on the earth, which we're in right now. In the last days, difficult times are going to come. Not better times, not human progress, but difficult times. Then in the next chapter, he says this, because that's true, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, to preach that word, right? So that more people can be called out of the nations and be saved. He goes on, reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. Why? For the time will come when they, that is, that is professing Christians, people who say they love Christ, will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires, not God's will, but to their own desires, and will turn away their ears from the truth and will turn aside to myths. So this is the description of apostasy in the end, not things getting better, not more people embracing God's law, but people actually falsely professing to love God, but actually doing the opposite. That's what it pictures here. And then we have 1 Peter 4, this really important passage where Peter says this, he says, Beloved, don't be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you, which comes upon you for your testing as though some strange thing were happening to you. In other words, you shouldn't be surprised by suffering. It's been ordained for you as a believer. And he goes on, But to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing. Why? So that also at the revelation of His glory, you may rejoice with exultation. So did you catch that? That's what we're waiting for, right? The revelation of His glory. But until then, he says, don't be surprised at the suffering that you have to go through. That tells me a lot. And listen, guys, we know, listen, we know just from natural law that things don't get better. They tend to get worse, right? And the Bible talks about the creation running down, how it's groaning. Look at what Paul says in Romans 8. He says, the creation was subjected to futility. For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. And then Paul says, we also groan. He says, we ourselves, having the first fruits of the Spirit, even as we ourselves groan within ourselves, we are waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. I think that tells us that as things are winding down in terms of time, in terms of this age, there's going to be more and more groaning. And it's, it's, it's Christ who is going to change that when he returns to the earth. Listen, the, the post-mill vision, I think, is just inconsistent with biblical truth. It's not going to be the preaching of the gospel and the, the sort of the gradual human progress of God's law going out that is going to bring in God's kingdom to the earth. I believe it is going to be the sudden and powerful return of Christ himself, right? We're talking about, we're talking about deity coming back to the earth his feet on the Mount of Olives, and establishing the fullness of his kingdom on the earth in Jerusalem from Mount Zion. What a moment that will be. Okay, deep breath. So that's part two in our critique of the post-mill vision. We still really haven't gotten to the practical aspects 
of Christian nationalism, but now you know what undergirds all of that. So that's what we will pick up next week. Until then, friends, remain what? Unshakable and keep loving each other well.